An estimated 25 million U.S. adults struggle with daily pain. The experience of chronic pain carries both physical and psychological implications, especially for those also experiencing addiction. On this episode of Through the Trees, we discuss chronic pain, its history and treatment, with Dr. Rachel Kulas, psychologist at Cedar. Addiction treatment healthcare is vast territory, much of it having yet to be fully charted. It also is a field with some of the most passionate and interesting of clinicians. Each week, we walk the addiction treatment trails, learning from experts of all backgrounds and specialties. My name is Pat Failing, and I'm an addiction psychiatrist for Cedar and the University of Colorado. You're listening to Through the Trees, the Cedar Addiction Treatment Podcast. Well, this is Dr. Pat Failing, and once again, I'm very happy to sit down as part of the Through the Trees podcast at Cedar. I'm joined today on our radio show by Dr. Rachel Kulas. Uh, Dr. Kulas is a psychologist uh, for Cedar. She has uh, a few different roles, but heavily involved with assessment of patients, clinical treatment, and then also an educational role. It's very important for our listeners to know that CEDAR has a very strong educational curriculum in terms of uh, teaching young clinicians, young therapists, young physicians. Uh, So that's a lot of what we do. Rachel, thank you so much for joining me on our show today. I'm very happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Our topic of the day is a big one, in which involves pain, and specifically exploring themes of chronic pain. Uh, We see this a lot in our treatment here at Cedar, and it seems to have a lot of threads that interweave with addiction, and uh, specifically opioid addiction, but uh, other addictions as well. And uh, uh, Dr. Kulas has a lot of expertise in this area in understanding very advanced and fundamentally sound treatment protocols for helping those struggling with chronic pain. Sound fair? That sounds fair. Okay. Uh, uh, Rachel, where do you want to start? So first we can start by defining chronic pain. I think that's a good place. And what are we going to be talking about today? How do we operationalize chronic pain? So when I think about chronic pain, chronic pain is often but not always elicited from an injury, and it's typically worsened by factors that are removed from the original cause. So if you were injured, let's say you fell down the stairs and the injury gets worse after a period of three or six months, you're still continuing to feel that pain, but it has nothing to do with the stairs. That is something that's similar to chronic pain. Uh, Chronic pain we see in many people where there's actual no structural abnormalities, there's no tissue damage, and the effects of pain are still there. This is in contrast to acute pain, which is more immediate, typically lasting shorter than three-month period. So uh, acute pain, there is more of a a visible injury you could see? Typically, that's where the initial injury starts, is that acute pain, uh, either the laceration, a fracture, a burn, some actual structural or tissue damage for many people. Okay, so all all chronic pain in... Kind of, does it need to start with acute pain? 
It does mm. not. Oh, it so, does not. Okay. does not. So we have individuals who have chronic pain due to headaches. Those headaches are not always due to something such as a head injury where they could be tension headaches that are chronic headaches or headaches due to other things that don't actually have a structural tissue type damage to them. Okay. Even GI upset can be part of that too. Individuals suffering from IBS. Okay, so that's important for people to know. There, there does not necessarily need to be a very precise cause. Right, right. And that's part of the complexity to treating chronic pain for many individuals. Okay, well, uh, uh, go on. So one thing that I found interesting in my research of chronic pain is that in looking at the trajectory of acute pain to chronic pain, so brain images have found that when acute pain starts to transition into chronic pain, there is more activity related to the emotional centers of the brain versus the somatosensory centers of the brain. So typically when we see pain in a brain imaging study, it is directly related to the, the areas of the brain that target that body part. So somebody who has neuropathy, let's say in their feet, on brain imaging, you'll see the, the part of the brain light up that's related to their feet in more of an acute pain state. However, in chronic pain states, we see that that transitions instead of that somatosensory cortex to the emotional pieces of the brain. Oh, okay. So this suggests that chronic pain has a large emotional component to it. And when you think about chronic pain, somebody who's in pain most of the time or nearly every day, one could assume that that's quite distressing for the individual. There is an emotional hardship that's going on at the same time as what they experience. Is it? But does, does that mean that the struggle is not real? Like it's in, it's in their head? So yes and no, right? The pain is real. The perception of pain is real. That experience is real, even though there may not be a specific injury or, again, that structural tissue damage. Part of what is reinforcing that pain is the feelings of I can't or feelings of disability or feelings of uh, some automatic thoughts that people have are, I'm defective now, or I'm broken, I'm disabled by this chronic pain, and you have a pattern of what's called learned helplessness. So when you have those thoughts, it then loads on to that emotional experience, and now the, the instance or the arousal of pain is then elicited with that emotional component as well. So like a, a, there's a futile quality, mm -hmm. like there is nothing the individual is going to be able to do to help. That's what it feels like for an individual with chronic pain. And typically that's what behaviorally gets reinforced is I can't because if I am, then I'll be in more pain. And so what happens is people start adapting or coping with this by avoiding all things, all responsibilities. It may start gradual, but then tends to generalize out more and more. Then the person loses more of the things in life that gives them pleasure that would uh, go against those beliefs. Sure. And I imagine this plays out in medical care too. Like people, they seek an appointment with a doctor and the doctor kind of throws up their hands a little bit. They're like, I can't do all that much to help you. Absolutely. And it's probably pretty discouraging for the person. 
that's typically what what is happening and so the person is coming there i want help i need help i'm in you know i'm in a lot of pain please what can you do for me and the doctor runs either tests labs imaging all the things that you typically would expect from a biomedical model and there's no answer so then what gets reported back to the patient is you're making it up it is in your head and then the patient feels completely invalidated and again they're lost they're struggling for answers and then questioning themselves at times and so what what would they turn to at that moment it feels a little hopeless sure well very interesting so it kind of reinforces this cycle that must be very hard for them to get out of absolutely sometimes i have had patients who are from a different generation, maybe from the, the 50s or the 60s. Mm-hmm. And it's sometimes a little bit foreign to them, like almost this idea of like, stop complaining. We didn't talk about pain all that much. Is that true? Like, has, have, has our health care evolved over the last 100 years to look at pain? So I haven't done the research on generational studies. However, what I can speak to is that in the 1990s, they developed the pain scale as the fifth vital sign in healthcare. Okay. So, what does that mean? So when you go in for any doctor's appointment, you get your, you get weighed, you take your temperature, you get your blood pressure, your heart rate, all those vital signs, and now it's been mandate, mandated that Somebody asks you how much pain you're in and to rate that pain from a scale of 0 to 10, 0 being no pain, 10 being excruciating pain. Now, this has been developed as a part of routine care, so now it's happening all the time. And again, this showed up in the about the 1990s. And when that happened, people are now attending to it. So what happens is if now if we're thinking about the pain, we're more aware of any instance of pain that we're having. And so now we're looking for treatments for pain a bit more than we would have before. Okay. So it became like a front and center topic Mm -hmm. for people. And were there even like, I know that uh, patients sometimes these days go to a pain clinic. Mm. Were there pain clinics in the 60s? Like, did that even exist? So... Up until the 60s, pain was assessed from a medical perspective as just, again, that structural tissue damage. So it wasn't even until after then that we started thinking about pain as a more complex experience. Okay. And in the 1990s, right around the time of that fifth vital sign pain scale, we also had the rise of big pharma and the opioids for treating pain. Mm, okay. So that I know, and then this has become... This is some of the origins behind what you might hear about that people call the opioid epidemic. And so this is a big public health public health crisis. Yes, absolutely. And so in 1996, the American Pain Society enacted that fifth vital sign. And in 1998, it was adapted into the Veterans Health Administration. And then in 1999, you had Big Pharma, Purdue Pharma, responding with, here, now that we're responding to pain and it's becoming part of routine care, here's how we address it. Here's the answer. We have Vicodin, we have morphine, we have Percocet, we have hydrocodone. This will help. And 
telling the providers that this is not addictive. So this became then a new way to treat this issue that was on the rise. Uh, so the, the stars aligned a little bit in a pretty dark way to create some of the problems that we see in healthcare today. It was certainly the perfect storm. Sure. So pain has been talked about in a, a chronic way in these last, what, couple decades. But I know pain has been a, a, a large component of, what, the human experience and civilization and, and especially medicine for a very long time. Was it, I mean, was this treated as far back as we know? So the earliest to date um, information that I have actually started in the 17th century. So Rene Descartes actually looked into the mind-body experience and started to come up with some ideas about how people respond to pain. So he was the, the forefather of this study of pain. However, it wasn't really formalized and it was quite minimalistic. But in 1894, von Frey proposed the specificity theory of pain. So he came up with the first pain theory suggesting that sensory receptors in the body were directly responsible for specific types of pain. Because before that, we didn't, we didn't really know where it came from. We couldn't understand it exactly. Whereas today, now we know that there are all different sensory receptors in the body and how they respond, um, how they increase different types of pain, and how we respond to pain. So that was really when that started to develop. So, was, so late 1800s was when almost like the the nervous system theory of pain. Yes, yes, that's correct. Okay. And then fast forward almost a hundred years later, when we're really starting to fine tune how we understand pain, and this is quite interesting. Um, Melzack and Walls came up with the gate control theory of pain. So this is where. It helps to explain people's experiences and validate their experiences of pain being more so in their head, right? Because what they proposed is that pain is processed through the brain. And so what happens is it goes up through your sensory receptors and your limbs appendages, up through your nervous system, and then into the brain. Once it gets into the brain, there, it also enters the thought section and the emotion section, as well as the somatosensory cortex. And what they proposed is that pain can be greatly influenced, either increased or decreased, based on these other factors. So the things that we're thinking about, the emotions that we're feeling, and the things that we're doing in response to pain. And over time, because of the idea of neuroplasticity and that the brain can change based on what we do and the repeated behaviors that we engage in, certain, activate, uh, certain pathways can be activated more than others. So as we had talked about before, individuals who start to feel like they can't do things because of pain, then don't do those things. They change their behavior. They withdraw or they avoid um, maybe previous things that they used to engage in, hobbies perhaps. So then there's the thought that, you know, I can't do these things. I'm disconnected. I'm defective. There's a negative self-appraisal. And with a negative self-appraisal, a lack of the behavior that you enjoy in, you then have the presence of negative emotions. 
And so what we know now is that it opens a, a gate. They call it the pain gate. It's not an actual one, but it opens that gate to the experience of pain and making it more intense, adding further to this idea of chronic pain and making it worse. We also know that we can change those things. We could change our behaviors, our thoughts, regulate our emotional experience, and that would help to close the gate and minimize the experience of pain. So is this when, when people would say they have a high or a low tolerance for pain? Is that connected to what you're talking about? Absolutely. So part of that is an individual sensitivity to pain right? And then there's this learning process that if you're a high-functioning, well-adjusted person with a lot of skills and resources, you will likely be able to handle more pain than somebody else who's in a state of chronic distress due to other psychosocial factors who may not have a lot of skills. Their sensation of pain may be more pronounced in that those people. Okay, so you're your identity of who you are sounds like it really matters. Certainly. In, in this. People who like identify as more durable or more uh, more resilient in some way, if you like looked at those people with kind of the same back, they would kind of report, they'd self-report lower pain scores than somebody who was a little bit less less resilient, I guess. Certainly. Um, somebody with more ego strength and also how somebody explains a situation to themselves. Like how do they understand the world? So if somebody is recently diagnosed with arthritis, let's say, chronic condition, very painful. Somebody can be have that diagnosis and then think, this is awful. I can't believe this. I'm going to have to change my whole life. So you have those thought patterns, which then in turn influences your behaviors where you do change the things that you do you start to withdraw you start to stop doing the things that you used to do as much and that emotional experience is then quite negative you'll feel anxious or distressed sad you're you're grieving a, a piece of yourself or a piece of your ability that you feel like you no longer have however another person may get that diagnosis and approach that situation or explain it to themselves of wow this is unfortunate and I'm, I'm still happy to be here. I'm still happy that I have my health and I can do things and it's not something worse. So that individual may recognize like, yeah, I may have to make some adjustments in my life and that is unfortunate. However, I still have the opportunity to live and be here, be a part of my family, do all those things that are important to me. So like a little bit of like a core optimism. They're like, well, what you gonna do? We gotta keep moving forward. Certainly. And this seems to set the stage. You mentioned, so we've got, this is, you said it's called the gate, the gate theory? Yes. For pain. Mm -hmm. And this was, uh, what, the, towards the end of the 20th century? So where are we now with this? We've got over, over the last 20 years, do we have, what do we do with somebody who is struggling in this way? So for me, my approach is typically a cognitive behavioral approach. Cognitive behavioral therapy examines these thoughts, behaviors, emotions, and physical sensations. The understanding is that all of these things are interrelated. So once one of those dynamics changes, 
the other three do as well. There's a ripple effect, which was sort of what I was highlighting in the last part of our conversation. Okay. So cognitive behavioral therapy looks at those components, right? You have that chronic sensation of pain, discomfort, right? And so working with individuals to change their appraisals of that pain and what it means for them can then also help to change their behaviors as well as their emotional experience. And again, that trajectory of acute pain, acute pain and chronic pain has a large emotional influence on it. So if we can help someone to be more emotionally regulated and develop those skills and to help restructure their thinking problems, um, we can help them reduce their experience of pain overall. Uh, give us an example. How Can you describe uh, like a, a mini story you've heard from a patient that, that would apply? Yeah, certainly. So I was working with an individual who suffered from chronic headaches. Again, it's one of those conditions that can be very difficult for a medical provider to treat. And so part of her experience is the physical sensation of pain and she would not be able to play with her children for a long amount of time or not attend parties. And anytime there was um, like a large event, she already anticipated that she would be in pain. Therefore, her behavior was, I'll withdraw. And so what happens in that moment is when you withdraw from that, there's a negative confirmation bias. So she attributes any sort of reduction in pain from her isolative behavior, although that may not be totally accurate. She may have been able to attend the party and not have the headache. However, she didn't give her chance, uh, give herself the chance to disprove that. So she just automatically concluded that it's from my avoidance behavior that reduces my pain. So oftentimes we see that and how it maps onto addiction as well as addiction is very highly influenced by avoidance. Okay. So here comes the pain, there's nothing I can do, I'm either going to withdraw or now I'm going to self-medicate. So either with opiate prescriptions, alcohol, or some other substance. And in that instance, it's like, oh, okay, this helps my pain. What happens over time, because of the way the body changes, increases in tolerance occur. And then individuals need higher doses of whatever substance they were initially taking to then get the same amount of relief. And what also happens as their tolerance for the substance goes up, their tolerance for the pain goes down. Sure. Okay. The, there's a reaction there where it, they actually become more sensitive to the pain. So almost it, if we equate these two... I've had some people describe drinking as a sort of avoidance, and you need more alcohol over time to get the same avoidance. Would we have that also with people, like you mentioned with the, the headache example, that at first the person needs to avoid the party, then they need to avoid the small social gathering, mm -hmm. then they need to avoid anything, and then a print... And, Ultimately, they're just in bed and never leaving bed. They're almost like avoiding the whole shebang. That's basically what we see happening with a lot of individuals with chronic pain and also with addiction. It's a, yeah, some sort of a, a, I don't know, like a death cycle of avoidance to they be, envelop into nothingness almost. 
And that's what it feels like for them. And that's where that emotional component is highly activated. And the behavioral thought appraisal there is this, this, this pattern of learned helplessness. And I, there's nothing I can do. I can't change the outcome. I'm stuck like this forever. And so here I am. I'm just going to isolate and self-medicate. I imagine patients in this way, it, it, must be, it must be difficult sometimes as a clinician to help unravel some of these beliefs. We must have people that are really quite attached to this belief structure. Like they're, they're not quite ready to let it go. Yes. So there was one case in particular that was, I felt personally heartbreaking because it was a young adult. And it was a young adult who came from a very difficult upbringing, a lot of conflict within the home. And so what this young adult learned is that when I'm sick, mom and dad stop fighting. And when I'm sick, mom and dad then pay attention to me. And that's how I get my needs met. So this young adult came to us and had absolutely no significant medical conditions. All his labs, his imaging, everything that they had done was completely unremarkable. However, this this young man kept complaining of just chronic debilitating pain and always having to leave. And interestingly enough, what we found while treating him in different groups and different providers found that when this individual wanted certain needs to be met, all of a sudden there was an influx of experienced symptoms where he had intense uh, gastrointestinal discomfort, he'd have to leave the room. Um, it was very, there were very loud sounds being made when he would excuse himself, but nothing on the surface that would indicate that he's in pain. So typically, if you have the physical sensation of pain, you know, people often experience like an increased heart rate, changes in breathing, changes in body temperatures, sometimes people start sweating um, or changing how they respond in that way. And, and none of those none of those symptoms were readily apparent. Hmm. Okay. With using CBT, mm-hmm. our goal is to what it's almost like to open up possibilities, like different ways of thinking. Like they you you might be in pain, but not necessarily. Like you could the party might go okay kind of thing. Right. So it's it's turning the thinking to more of those yes and statements, more adaptive, more coping based instead of debilitating. So if I go to this party, I may get a headache and I can still show up for even 10 minutes or half an hour before I have to leave. And so that's part of the cognitive behavioral therapy. It's both a cognitive and a behavioral component and aligning those things to work with one another instead of blindly attaching to a thought or a belief that I can't or, you know, I'm disabled, so this isn't going to work, which then is reflected in the behaviors. Sure. And, and with the gentleman with the, the vague pain, almost like I could get my needs met through being in pain, people would attend to me, and also people might attend to me through more vocal communication. Like I could talk about how I felt instead of have to experience pain to get attended to. Right. 
yeah, so had this young man just learned more effective interpersonal skills, he could certainly get his needs met in the same way. However, he'd been engaging in this pattern for years and years and years, so it just takes more time to start to undo some of those maladaptive coping skills that people develop. Sure. Experience the compassionate care of CEDAR, the Center for Dependency, Addiction, and Rehabilitation. Located at the University of Colorado Hospital, we manage complex health needs in addition to addiction. To learn more, visit cedarcolorado.org. So, Dr. Kulas, I know you are a veteran yourself. You were in the armed forces. And has that influenced how you see some of this in your clinical work today with those struggling with pain and chronic pain? Well, it certainly piques my interest. So being a veteran, I have a, a very large interest in working with the veteran population. So I, I like to look into kind of what have we extrapolated from the military. And looking at the research on chronic pain, a lot of the findings that we've found are highly influenced from wartime. So dating back as far to World War II, Frank Beecher published a paper, actually, in 1959, and he just made some observations. He was working as a medic at the time, and he noticed that for soldiers, if they sustained a serious injury, they knew they'd be able to get to go home. And so there's this incentive to go home if you're injured. Hmm. So okay. for... So for the soldiers that were injured, they actually needed a lot less pain medication, and sometimes none at all. And this was even for people who had traumatic amputations. No pain medication. On the other hand, civilians who were captured or prisoners of war or, you know, there's no incentive, there's no silver lining of going home, who had similar injuries, had an intense amount of pain and needed an intense amount of pain medication. Oh, interesting. So the, so what's the theory with this, that they were, they, they really needed to be heard, they needed to be validated for their pain experience? Well, if there's a strong emotional incentive, so there's almost a relief. So this injury causes me relief. This is my ticket home versus this injury is something debilitating to me. So it's two different ways of interpreting the experience that can increase or decrease your perception of pain. Oh, okay. So the so the soldiers that lost a limb, they there was a silver lining. Yes. Okay. To this, uh, which is pretty dark. Yes. But there, but it was, and that silver lining helped them cope. Yes, we see this in the PTSD research as well for more modern warfare. So soldiers um, throughout history that were told that they're going to get better, that had an installation of hope from the provider, actually recovered faster than soldiers who were treated by other medical professionals who weren't sure on how to treat PTSD. Mm, interesting. So, so hope was worth a lot. And... Hope really impacted the physiologic experience. Okay. Yes. Well, very fascinating. I wanted to touch a little bit on the interplay between opioid addiction and pain. Mm -hmm. And 
I I know we we think of this very much with pills. You mentioned Purdue Pharma. That's in the news these days. What do we tend to see of people who develop kind of a, a painkiller addiction? Do you have any data on some of this? Yeah, I have some some data I can share with you. According to the National Safety Council, they conducted a study of over 200 primary care doctors, and they found that nearly all of them wrote prescriptions that would last the patient for more than three days. And they also frequently prescribed medications that were unsuitable conditions, and they overlooked non-addictive prescriptions, even though there have been evidence to suggest otherwise. So like an ibuprofen yes. or a naproxen, Tylenol, like yeah, okay. exactly. Is this also where uh, the like the prescription of a massage would be valid? Like you're prescribing almost non-pharmacologic interventions. Certainly, for somebody with chronic pain and not having effective treatment otherwise, that can certainly be helpful. From the data you have, mm-hmm. those those avenues were not super utilized. They they leaned too heavily on opioids. Yes, and what we found is forty five percent of primary care doctors are responsible for prescribing pain pills. Twenty two percent of the of doctors are more specialty care. So that's where you get your chiropractor, optometrist, gynecologist prescribing pain killers for those conditions. 13% of prescriptions are coming from a pain management clinic. 12% are coming from a dentist. Oh, interesting. And that's something we've actually seen here at Cedar, but we can elaborate or come back to that. 5% of prescriptions come from an emergency room. 1% comes from a psychiatrist. And the other 1% is considered other, so some other approach. Sure. Tell me more about the the dental data. So this comes from routine dental procedures. And so when people get a tooth extraction, which is quite common in the human experience, people need their wisdom teeth pulled, dentists will then prescribe painkillers. And so... For individuals who've had a minor surgery, such as tooth extraction, 1.6% of them have been on medication for more than a year. Wow. Okay. Okay. So one out of 50 people get a year-long opioid course for a tooth. Okay. Correct. And that's where you see that overlap of treating pain to addiction because we wouldn't anticipate somebody having their wisdom teeth pulled to be in pain for a year. Not that amount of pain. Sure. So many Americans are prescribed opiates and many people don't even finish their prescriptions and instead of turning them in or disposing of them or um, storing them securely, they're just left in the open. And I, I actually have a handful of statistics related to people who are sharing prescriptions. And that seems to be a common experience. So many people, I think 48% of people who knew somebody that overdosed was offered painkillers from a family member or a loved one. Yeah, this isn't happening in isolation. No. Okay. 
I know on a public health side, there is one topic is primary prevention. Hmm. So we, we talk a lot, even on this radio show and here at CEDAR, on active treatment protocols. At the same time, there are initiatives to try to prevent or to, to slow down the percentages of people who develop opioid addictions in our country. And I know uh, some of this involves very limited painkiller prescriptions. Like, for instance, if you come to our, the UC Health ER, I believe they have a three-day max protocol for painkillers and very often give people no painkillers. So where it used to be that you would go into the ER with a lost prescription or something and you, you'd get a month, and they're really trying to rein that back in. So, so painkillers are on kind of a tight leash these days. And that's what the evidence suggests. So looking at the CDC data, the prescribing practices and the amount of opioids that are being prescribed has gone down. However, what's happening is the amount of opioid death overdose, death due to overdose, has increased. And what the data has found is that's because people are now switching to synthetic opioids such as fentanyl or carfentanyl. Oh, okay. And the and those drugs, the the power level of those compounds is much stronger on the brain. It's too much for the brain to be able to handle. Yes, and I don't think people really know the magnitude or they underestimate the potency of these drugs when they decide to use them. Okay. Are, are you aware of any other uh, approaches? used to try to make a difference with the opioid epidemic and prevention these days? Public health uh, campaigns has been what I've been aware of, and then just a reduction in prescribing practices, trying to educate for patients, um, and walking through the VA myself. There are posters and, and graphics everywhere recommending that there are alternate choices for pain management. There's also alternative therapies for individuals who suffer from chronic pain. So not resorting solely to medicine or invasive procedures, but uh, using therapy or going to see a chiropractor, like you had said, massage therapist, uh, biofeedback is a good one. We do that here too. Okay. Um, uh, what is that? Can you, can you tell us a little bit of what is biofeedback? Certainly. Biofeedback has lots of different methods, but ultimately what it is is when your body is hooked up to a computer device that is giving you instant feedback on what's going on in the body. So some of that looks like muscle tension, perspiration. There's neurofeedback where it's looking at brain waves. We look specifically at heart rate variability. So this is not heart rate. Heart rate variability is how smooth and consistent the heart is beating. Okay. So that like the the heart is accelerating and decelerating and kind of a little bit of a wave form with the heart. When using biofeedback, we like to look for a smooth consistent pattern of the heart rate and that is normally associated with positive emotions. So when somebody experiences positive emotions, their heart rate beats more smoothly. When the person is stressed out, the heartbeat becomes a little bit more uh, erratic, and so you'll see a pattern lo that looks more like mountains instead of those smooth, rolling hills. So we know that our emotions highly influence our bodily sensations, such as 
a heartbeat. And so we use that feedback real time with patients to then coach them up on different relaxation techniques such as mindfulness breathing um, or guided imagery or other mindfulness type approaches to help regulate their breath and ultimately their heart, heart rate so that they can feel better. Sure. So, so once again, the, the interplay between the brain and the body. Mm-hmm. And helping them. And then we're back to this like idea of, I don't know, mastery and hope. Like that if you, just because you have an experience of chronic pain, your your thoughts and, you, and your emotions matter. And looking at them and reflecting on them can help you with your experience. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. Well... Uh, Dr. Kulas, this was very interesting, and I think that this was good. I, I really love talking about even some of the history behind this. Uh, to recap, we talked about how pain was looked at, uh, how how pain was seen, and even I like I like what you mentioned about some of the military writing of looking at soldiers and how they experienced painful injuries, and and also connected to even being able to go home and how that impacted their experience, and then what we see today as patients with chronic pain, and then obviously the heavy hitter being then a developed uh, an opioid addiction at the same time. And uh, so we do a lot of uh, targeted treatment for those individuals here at Cedar. Do you have any final thoughts for us, or any if, if you had a listener or a family member or a patient who is seeking help, how would you guide them? Well, I would first start by saying that anybody experiencing chronic pain, therapy helps, particularly cognitive behavioral therapy. It is not a cure for the chronic pain. However, it can reduce your experience of pain and help you find a way in different strategies to get you back to living the life that you want to lead. A meaningful life. Some other types of therapies that can be helpful in treating chronic pain are mindful-based stress reduction as well as acceptance and commitment therapy. Um, I will say that kind of behavioral therapy has an extensive amount of evidence. It's supported by the American Psychological Association and specifically a subsection of the APA is Division 12 the clinical psychology section really supports cognitive behavioral therapy in this treatment. Okay. Well, wonderful. Thank you so much to our listeners. This is uh, Dr. Pat Failing on the Through the Trees podcast as part of CEDAR. Uh, sitting down, really happy to welcome Dr. Rachel Kulas on our radio show today, talking about pain, chronic pain, CBT, and everything about this. Very good. Thank you so much, Rachel. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Through the Trees, the Cedar Addiction Treatment Podcast. Please visit cedarcolorado.org for a wide array of educational content about the disease of addiction and the science of recovery. If you or a loved one are considering Cedar and the University of Colorado Hospital for treatment, please speak with our admissions team at 720-848-3000. CEDAR, the Center for Dependency, Addiction, and Rehabilitation, helping people build a life of recovery.